0: Catherine Howe is a New York Times best-selling historian and novelist, and together with American journalist and author Anderson Cooper, she co-authored Vanderbilt, The Rise and Fall of an American Dynasty. She talks about the project, how it came together, and her own best-selling fiction on this week's Joys of Binge Reading. Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free e-book and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com And now, here's our show. Hi, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler, and today on Binge Reading, Catherine Howe talks about working with Anderson to write one of the Washington Post's most notable works of nonfiction for 2021. We've got our usual free books offer, This week it's a group of authors offering clean and wholesome holiday romance. You can check it out on the Joys of Binge Reading website for the links or subscribe to our newsletter so it just lands in your mailbox with the links there ready for you to click. Don't forget either about exclusive bonus content on Binge Reading on Patreon, including the Getting to Know You 5 Quickfire Questions from Catherine on Patreon.com forward slash the joys of binge reading. But now here's Catherine. Hello there, Catherine, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me, Jenny. I'm delighted to join you. Look, you're a New York Times best-selling author of historical fiction in your own right. But recently you've also co-authored one of the prominent books of the year. And that's Anderson Cooper's family story, Vanderbilt. The Rise and Fall of an American Dynasty. So tell us, I think this is, is this your first co-authoring project for starters?
1: It, it is actually, I did a little bit of co-authoring of a screenplay with another friend and I've taught writing for many years. So I was accustomed to a collaborative approach to writing but this is the first time that it's actually come to the world in book
0: form. It was a really exciting project. Yes, and how did it come about that you got enlisted for the project? Well. We knew that Anderson was going to be working on a book, and
1: it was going to be a history book. And he, of course, is a, he's a celebrated author in his own right. For your audience in New Zealand who might not know him as well as we do in the US, he's a, he's a broadcast journalist on CNN, which is one of our big cable news networks. And, and he also does many other things. He does the New Year's Eve ball drop in Times Square and things like that. He's a, kind of a prominent person. And he had written a couple of memoirs. He did a memoir of his own, and he did a a co-authored project with his mother, and his mother was Gloria Vanderbilt. And so he knew that he wanted to do a history book, but I think he was looking for someone who had more experience writing history, because writing history is a little bit different from writing memoir. And so we were fortunate that our various representatives put, put us in touch with each other. And it was very exciting because we found in the the course of preparatory conversations that we had similar ideas and dreams for what kind of book Vanderbilt could be. We were both much more interested in people and in social history and in lived experience than we were, for instance, in the history of business or the history of finance or things like that. There are other very fine histories of the Vanderbilt business. But we were really interested in the history of Vanderbilt as individual people and what their stories were. And it was a great project to work on together.
0: Yes, that's fabulous. You wanted to get inside their heads is one way you've uh, expressed it in other interviews. And was that a difficult thing to do? Was there plenty of information that you could draw on?
1: No. You know, it's always a little bit tricky to try to imagine yourself into the mind of someone living in a different moment in time. As a historical fiction author, that is something that I do quite a lot. In a few instances for some of our I'll say although they were, of course, real people. Uh, for some of the people that we look at in the book, they did leave um, first-person accounts of themselves. But of course, you know, people in the past have no more perfect self-knowledge than we do in the present. And so one of the tasks of, of a really engaging history is to look at an individual within their historical context and try to kind of see in between the lines, so to speak, what it might feel like, feel like to live at a given moment in time. And the book spans from the 17th century um, all the way up to the very recent past. And so, um, of course, there are many generations of Vanderbilt in between. So it was a pretty fun challenge to try to think into all these different moments that we identified, as moments we wanted to explore.
0: Yeah, so you didn't attempt to do a, a, a timeline approach, but you did settle on certain key characters and key moments, didn't you, as you say? Yeah,
1: mm. we did. There, there were... You know, you can't really encapsulate one family in in one book because there there's too many people, there's too much going on, there's too many different things. And so what we what we chose to do was we picked a few very salient and resonant individuals uh, from from the family story, beginning with the very first Vanderbilt to arrive in the New World in 1660 thereabouts, and um, ending, of course, with Anderson's very famous and celebrated mother who passed away actually while the book was was being written. And so it was kind of wonderful to be able to trace a few of these very specific people. And we found a few commonalities of experience maybe um, over the generations that came as a bit of a surprise. And so I think people who read the book will be, maybe amused to see certain echoes repeating over different generations
0: yes now you are an academic historian and your area of specialty is early American history so you had a very good basis from which to start work but I think you did have um, some personal connection with the Vanderbilts through your mother's work as well didn't you
1: that's that's true. When so, I my name is Catherine Howe, and my mother is also named Catherine Howe, and she was a um, she retired a few years ago as a decorative arts curator. And so, as a child, I would you know spend a lot of time with my mother looking at pieces of furniture, or traveling to different museums, or meeting different people. My mother, as often as not, would be on her hands and knees, you know, under a table, pointing out to me how it was put together. And one of the biggest exhibitions of her career was in 1994, and it was an exhibition on the Herder Brothers, Furniture and Interiors for a Gilded Age. And it uh, traveled to the Metropolitan Museum in New York and had a very exhaustive uh, catalog that went with it. And the Herter Brothers were actually the furniture and cabinet makers who were charged with creating some of the most opulent Mm -hmm. and over-the-top Vanderbilt interiors during the 1870s, 80s, and the 90s. And so as a teen, my introduction to the Vanderbilt legacy was through through the sort of grandia opulence of their interiors. So I had traveled to several of the Vanderbilt houses in Newport. I had, you know, seen a lot of reproductions of what the interiors had looked like. And, and so it was a very exciting prospect to me to be able to look at some of the individual people who had lived out their lives in this fabulous setting that I had been. At an early age to appreciate.
0: Yeah, it's, it's remarkable. I mean, some of the things in the book—very, very simple things like the amount of money that they felt justified in spending on one ball, for example—staggering, oh, mind-boggling, yeah. isn't it? Really, it is really staggering.
1: It's, I mean, I would—I might go so far to the part call it offensive. It's, you know, I—I I, I enjoy the term the Gilded Age. The Gilded Age is a term that was coined by Mark Twain, the famous American humorist of the 19th century. And I think an, an important point to remember about the Gilded Age is that it is very avowedly not a golden age. Gilding is a description for when you overlay gold leaf over a cheaper sub-base material, usually wood. It's designed to like take a plain object and make it look artificially sumptuous. And so I feel like so much of American life and culture in the 1870s is encapsulated in that current phrase, the gilded age, because it was a time of simply mind-boggling disparities in wealth. You know, you have the vulnerability at the very top, and then you have and then you have, you know, labor issues at the other end. And it's in a way, we haven't seen anything like that wealth disparity until today.
0: Yes. Yes, it's interesting to reflect on that. What was the most challenging thing for you about the project? Oh, definitely having it uh,
1: take place during COVID. I mean, it's two, two things. Two things happened in the course of this book. I had a baby. First, <laughs> oh gosh, that's a big thing, just to It was it was pretty sizable, so that that pushed the uh, that pushed the work on the book back a little bit. Anderson had a baby also around the same time, so there was that. And then, just as I was starting to get organized and get back to writing, COVID hit, and the challenge, of course, with a, a history book is that you want to use a lot of archival sources. So I had one really epic day in the New York Historical Society, two epic days in the New York Historical Society, just frantically scanning any document I can get my grubby mitts on before we fled out of town. So definitely archive access was a big challenge with this particular book. But in the end, I'm very proud of uh, what we were able to produce. And uh, yes. partly through the, through the involvement of many very dedicated librarians who were able to make was available to us digitally that wouldn't have been available under normal circumstances. Librarians are the unsung heroes of, of all writing, I think.
0: I totally agree. Was there anything you discovered during your research for this book that really surprised you? Or what was perhaps the most surprising thing to you about what you uncovered? One thing that always
1: Puzzled me. There's a, a character who who has two chapters all to herself, and her name is Alva. Oh yes. And one thing that would always puzzle me about Alva. Alva was born Alva erstein Smith. She was from Mobile, Alabama, which is in the Southern United States. She was from a Confederate slaveholding family. So for your listeners in New Zealand, the American Civil War took place from 1863 to 1865, and it was a, it was a war fought predominantly over the question of slavery. And New York City is interesting because it was kind of on the cusp. While New York City was in the Northeast, and therefore was on technically on the Union side of that argument, its sympathies and its culture was actually much more aligned with the South. And in fact, in the 18th century, the kind of proportion of people in New York City who owned slaves was more along the lines of what you would find in Charleston, South Carolina than what you would find in Boston, Massachusetts, for example. So New York is kind of an interesting case that way. So Alba shows up in New York and long story short, she ends up being the person who breaks the Vanderbilt into Gilded Age society. She marries a grandson of the founder of the Fortune, Commodore Vanderbilt was the founder of the Fortune. And the Vanderbilts had been considered kind of already new money by, by the old guard in New York City even though they have been around for a long time. And Alba had this tremendous, overweening ambition. And she ended up throwing a ball, Uh, you were alluding to it earlier in our conversation, that that was just an expenditure of money that that beggars the imagination. And it was Alva's ambition, totally, that broke the Vanderbilts onto the social stage. And the thing that always puzzled me about Alva is she's clearly an indomitable person. She's, She's a fascinating, often very problematic character, But in her later life, she has a second act that I'd always found difficult to square with her first act. Her first act was as the the original Society Grand dame, In her later years, Alva turned her attention and her organization and her fortune and her focus entirely to the question of woman suffrage. She became a very active and engaged suffrage agitator. She was one of the leaders and backers of a huge march of women through the streets of New York City in 1912. And in fact, within a couple of years ago, a national monument to the women's party was founded in Washington, DC. And it is named in part for Alba. At that point in her life, her last name was Belmont because she had divorced Vanderbilt, remarried a guy named Belmont. And I could never quite figure out how that could be the same person. You know, how what, what about Alba made her both of those people? And it was, I don't want to give too much away for those of your readers who might wish to read the book, but I feel like I found the answer. And it is a pretty interesting, as I say, problematic, but nevertheless historiographically fascinating answer. And also speaks, I think, to the many complex ways in which broad historical currents can play out in the life of an individual person in ways that we don't always think
0: so. Yeah, so she spent the first half of her life madly trying to claw her way into society, and then the mm-hmm. second half almost thumbing her nose at conventional society and trying to re make the rules in a way, didn't exactly. she? Exactly,
1: she did everything she could to get entree. And then only a couple of decades later, it seems like she was doing everything she could to burn it all down. It was really fascinating Yeah, to think about.
0: She probably deserves a book on her own right. I'm sure there have been more she's than had one a, She's reading. had a book or two,
1: um, yeah. <laughs> many of which are, are, are quite worthy reading. But I also enjoyed being able to put Alva in the broader context of the family because one of the things that also intrigued me about the Vanderbilt's, so Alves is upstart southerner. We think of the Vanderbilt as being a, it, Vanderbilt is a very Dutch name, and of course New York was originally New Amsterdam, and so we think of it as being a very Dutch, formerly Dutch settlement um, on the East Coast that was now the United States. But I really enjoyed uncovering many different instances in which a southerner, and a valid southerner, married into this Dutch or pseudo-Dutch family and changes its direction completely. I think it's also kind of gives gives us a a different way of thinking about New York City and New York City society and the connections between different regions in ways that I found unexpected. Yeah,
0: yeah. So, turning now to your historical fiction, you've dealt with a slightly different, well, a very different period than the Vanderbilt. See, the Salem Witch Trials, you've made a special study and and interest, and you've developed, you've had two very good fictional books around the whole idea of the Salem Witch Trials. Um, Three, actually. (laughs) Sorry, three. I didn't actually, sorry, I didn't. mm.
1: That's okay. Conversion is a young adult novel that also has a Salem teacher.
0: Aha, uh-huh, good. The most recent one that's been published is The Daughters of Temperance Hobbs, And it is mm-hmm. actually the second instalment in the story of your heroine um, Connie. But can you tell us a bit about your interest in this period and the, the personal element as well as the academic element in it? Sure.
1: So I was in I was in graduate school over a decade ago. I was in graduate school at in Boston. And I was living in a very small seaside town that's not very far from Salem at all. And I was living in a house that was actually built in 1705, which, as a date, never really impresses anybody in the United Kingdom. But in the United States, it is unimaginably old. And so I found myself one afternoon thinking about the fact that I was sitting in a room where someone had passed by, had crossed through that space who had been present at the hangings at Salem, because it was only one town. Over. And the hangings of Salem were a massive spectacle in which people traveled from towns all over in order to come and watch and come and see and cheer, shout, and things like that. It started me thinking about the fact that we have this, I think, sometimes kind of condescending attitude towards people who live in the past. I think sometimes you look at people who live especially the distant past, and, and the 1600s, Mentally and intellectually, and you know, it is really a very alien country from the one we live in today, regardless of which part of the world we're living in. And it occurred to me that you know, everyone who lived during that moment in time, who lived through that very unique experience of Salem, Salem, for, for some context for your listeners who might not know was kind of the last gasp of the great wave of witch hunting that swept through Europe and then through the British Isles in the late Middle Ages and into the early modern period. And Salem was very late. Salem happened in 1692. And in that time, in a community of barely a few thousand people, 19 people were put to death by the state for having been witches. And in Puritan New England, witchcraft was it was a capital crime. It was not an ecclesiastic crime. So they didn't get burned at the stake the way they were in in the mainland of, of Europe. They were hanged by the neck as any other felon would have been. But it was very interesting to me to think about the fact that everyone who was involved in those trials, whether they were the accused, the accusers, the judges, the magistrates, the theologians, every one of those people lived in an intellectual and religious landscape in which having a witch trial was a rational thing to do, in which witchcraft was believed to be real, in which it was um, assumed that the devil could go about in the world, assuming the shape of other people. And I found myself thinking, you know, what does it feel like to live in that world? And so the organizing question of my first novel, which is called The Physic Book of Deliverance*, Stain, was if magic were real the way the Salem villagers actually believed it to be, who would do it and what would it look like and why would they do it? So this book is kind of a magical realist novel. It, it's not a fantasy pointy hat you know, story like that. It's, 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 it's different or its conception of magic is different. And the story follows a graduate student, like most people. My first novel is um, slightly too autobiographical. It's about a grumpy, brunette graduate student who, uh, who, who discovers that one of the Salem witches might have been the real thing. And, and that's where the intellectual roots of the story came from. The personal roots of that story uh, came from the fact that uh, my last name is Hal, like, how are you? But with me on the end. And I'm descended many generations ago from one of the women who was hanged at Salem. Her name was Elizabeth Howe. And so I was interested too by the fact that, like, most of the people who were put to death as witches in the early modern period were women. And they typically were women at middle age. Um, and they were usually targeted not because they had done anything, but because they were problematic people. Either they were too prone to anger or, or got physical when they got angry, or they were too quarrelsome or um, too poor or disagreeable. And so, you know, I was also very interested to think about the way that these kind of gendered expectations for behaviour and comportment can sometimes have very fatal consequences, both in history and in today.
0: Yes, it's, you've pointed out that it's shocking the way that views so quickly changed that within a decade of the last woman being tried, they they made it not a capital crime anymore. That's an incredibly short period for them to suddenly change their views on something so extreme. What was happening Oh, that I mean,
1: that's, that's only partly true. There were a couple of apologies that were issued around 1710 for the hangings at this place. But I think it's important to look at the form that those apologies took. The apologies, one of them came from one of the judges that was involved, Samuel Sewell, and one of them came from one of the accused, gr- accusing girls. And Sam Sewell, interestingly, came to believe that through having after having experienced a series of what he called wonders and marvels, he came to believe that he was mistaken not because they had been wrong per se, but he came to believe that the devil had tricked them. So Ah. it's not that he stopped believing that the devil existed, that he stopped believing that the devil actually act out in the world. He started to believe that they had all been fooled very cunningly by the devil. But he still believed that the devil had been running around loose in Salem. He just didn't necessarily believe that it had taken form in which they thought that it had been taken. In fact, witchcraft, although there there are a couple of instances of witch trials that take place after Salem, none are anything like to the same scale. Witchcraft actually remains against the law on the books until 1735. And then in 1735, it changes in a way that I find pretty interesting. After 1735, it becomes illegal to present yourself as if you are a witch. So to offer, you know, charming services for a fee or divination services or anything like that. But what's interesting to me about this is that it doesn't, suggest that belief in witchcraft actually hasn't changed that much. It's just less threatening than it was. It doesn't pose the kind of Economic or social threat that it did in the 17th century. And arguably, a reason for that could be that by the time we're in the 1730s, we're in what some historians have termed a consumer revolution in the 18th century. It's like a little bit easier to get by in the 1730s than it is in the 1680s or the 1690s. People have a little bit more money. They have a little bit more comfort. They have a little bit better food. It's just like a little bit, life is just a little easier. And when life is a little bit easier, You don't have to, if your butter doesn't come together, you don't have to blame a witch for it and then see if you can have her punish. It's easier to get butter. There's less at stake in a way. Mm. And so in a funny way, I feel like the belief piece of witchcraft doesn't change that much. It's just that its meaning or the risk that it poses to its community changes.
0: Do you think, is there a tendency that's ingrained in humans that's even with us today and in various different forms to vilify people who might be different or to hold different views from you? Is there something ingrained in the human character that we tend to do that? I mean, tragically, I would think, oh, yeah, don't you think? I do I mean, when it, I look around what's happening with even COVID and some of the things that people are choosing to believe about yeah. it. It's, it's,
1: You know, I think one of the great struggles of human existence is to celebrate our differences rather than be threatened by them mm. you know to to like to acknowledge and learn from and even enjoy the full panoply of human life and experience instead of resting to conclude that one mode is superior to another mode or one person knows better than another person you know I feel like it's such a it's such a challenge. I wish that I had a better answer for you, but, you know, I you see this pattern play out again and again and again, and it's, um, it's heartbreaking.
0: Yeah. Possibly that's one reason why the Salem Witch Trials have resonated quite a lot in our contemporary culture. There's been movies and all sorts of things. It, it's mm-hmm. something that has remained fascinating to people, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it definitely has. I mean, I think part of it, there are a few reasons why. I think it's partly because it's one of the few instances, at least in colonial American history, it's one of the very few instances where women are at the center of the story. Women are the ones who are being accused. Women are the ones who are doing the accusing. At least from a history standpoint, it, it is unusual to have a vision of the lives of women. And it's also unusual to have a vision of the lives of people who aren't rich, you know, think about think about who is likely to leave their a record of themselves in a historical mm. record. We know a lot about kings, we know a lot about queens, we know a lot about fancy people, we know a lot about literary people, literate people. But you know, it's most most people who were living from say, you know 1680 to 1700, we don't know who they were, we don't know their name. They don't leave a record of themselves except maybe a, a head on a, a name on a tombstone. Sometimes not even that. And so one of the things that I find interesting about that period is that it is an opportunity to think about average people, everyday life people. You know, I know a lot of historical fiction has been written about royal people and court intrigue, and I have to say that's never held any interest for me because I don't really care about those people. Like, they have enough attention, don't they?
0: (laughs) Yes, yes, sure. We're taking a quick break, and we'll be back with Catherine Howe shortly. Sadie's Vow, A Historical Mystery with a Heart of Romance is Jenny Wheeler's latest book, the first in a new trilogy, Home at Last. It's out this week at a special launch price of 99 cents in all ebook stores. Newly minted Austrian Count Dolphy Westerhoven and a mysterious woman he meets on the train are drawn into a deadly conflict with San Francisco gangs available today at my website, jennywheeler.biz, that's B-I-Z or Z, depending on what part of the world you live in, or at all digital stores. Look, turning from your specific books to your wider career, how did you make the transition from academic historian to fiction writer? And and what was it that um, was the catalyst for you to do that?
1: Well, as I say, I was, I was working, I was in graduate school, I was pursuing a doctorate, and I just, I had this idea for the first novel, the music book, of and, Staying, and I was fortunate that I was close friends with a friend who's a novelist who encouraged me and said, you know, you should, you should try it. Why don't you write it down? Why don't you see what happens, see how it feels? And I was trying to work on it at the same time as I was working on my dissertation, which is like the, the big book that you're supposed to write at the end of a humanities doctorate. Yeah. And I was, I was teaching writing, and and I found that I was just so much more passionately moved by the, the fiction than I was by the academic writing. And I'm frankly, I'm better at it also. And so long story short, I was very, very fortunate that the book found a publisher pretty easily. And... Managed to be a bestseller and resonate with a lot of people, and so I left graduate school and um, and haven't haven't looked back. And it's such a gift to be able to talk about history with readers and engaged readers, and in a way that is fun and interesting, and you know, not uh, didactic or anything like that. But to be able to explore stories that are interesting and uh, with people who want to read them, it's it's I feel incredibly incredibly. Um, blessed for lack of a better word to be able to do this job
0: yeah yeah but turning to Catherine as reader because we are starting to come to the end of our time together and I do like because we've called this podcast the joys of binge reading and it does focus on popular fiction books that are reaching people into people's lives I imagine that quite a lot of your reading is probably non-fiction and academic but what do you like to read for your personal pleasure and entertainment
1: my goodness well it's true that the vast majority of my reading is actually with an eye towards research. So um, yeah, I'm reading a book right now that I, I can't unfortunately discuss with you because it's for the next project that I'm working on for Anderson. And I, we haven't announced the subject of that yet. So I'm going to keep it under my hat. But from a fiction perspective, especially for those of your listeners who are interested by the Gilded Age or intrigued by the Gilded Age, I have devoured all of the old New York novels by Edith Wharton. Mm-hmm. Edith Wharton was the first... American woman to receive the Pulitzer Prize for fiction. And her probably the best known of those novels is The Age of Innocence, which many people, when they read, don't realize it's actually historical fiction. It's set in the 1870s. She wrote it in the 1920s. And it is very much about the passing away of this world of the, the New York, of the Gilded Age. And Edith Wharton herself is from the Jones family. Her original maiden name was Edith Newbold Jones. And if you've ever heard the phrase "keeping up with the Joneses," the Jones family of Edith Wharton, Edith Wharton's fame is that uh, the Jones family that coined that term. So she's writing about a world that she knows intimately well. And um, if you haven't read *The Age of Innocence*, I, I think I reread it every year. That one, and also *The Custom of the Country*; is her other kind of novel of ruthless, ruthless marriage market politics in the uh, in New York of the 19. 19- Teen. And then the other one, of course, is The Great Tragedy. She wrote The House of Mirth, um, which is also set in the Gilded Age, and is about a woman who, who, who ends up struggling to keep a toehold in the society, society into which she was born. And Wharton has just such a perfect eye for interiors and for detail and for dialogue. And you know, not all of her perspectives of age particularly well, but, but if you haven't read any Edith Wharton, and if you are enjoying... There's a on HBO right now, at least in the States, there's a Julian Fellows series called The Gilded Age that's airing. It's um, pretty fun. And if you end up reading Vanderbilt and you enjoy it, you couldn't do better than to supplement it with Candida Gordon.
0: Oh, that sounds great. Yes, indeed. Look, circling around, looking back down your your literary life, if you were going to do it all over again, is there anything you would change? Good question. I've spent
1: a number of years working on a novel that ultimately failed that didn't come together and is in a drawer and it belongs there but at the same time you know I I can't regret the time that I spent on it because some ideas that it gave me are going to appear in a novel that I've just completed so you know it would have been nice if it would perhaps maybe it's fair to say I wish I had been writer enough to make that novel work But I feel like I encountered the limits of my ability with that novel. And it just I couldn't make it work. It is not workable. So I I mourn that novel a little bit. There's some characters in it that I really liked and some terms of phrase that I really liked and so on and so forth. But that's not really a regret, is it? It's that's more of a more of a more of a heartbreak heartache grab it sounds no. like it was your apprenticeship in a way well in a way it would have been if it had been my first novel but it wasn't it was one that oh, I wrote no. a couple of years ago and this a lot of writers have you know I think most writers that I know have a, at least one book that's in the drawer that belongs there but nonetheless it was a it was a worthwhile experience and, and I'd have to say no I'm very grateful to have had the career that I have had so far and um I would just feel immensely privileged as long as I get to keep having it.
0: Great. Now, you mentioned tantalisingly a book that you've just finished and another project that you've got starting on. Can you tell us a little bit about what the next 12 months as a writer looks like for you?
1: Sure. Well, I've just completed a draft of a novel. I'm in the process of revising it. So on that floor, next I will be showing it to a couple of very trusted friends who will give me their honest opinions for any Writers who are listening, you will surely agree that the most important thing to have is early readers who will actually tell you the truth and be sometimes hard to hear. And then that will get turned over to my editor and and it will start whipping it into shape with her editorial eye. And I'm hoping that she will enjoy what I have to show her. And while that's happening, I'll begin a lot of archive time, the next co authored project that Anderson and I are planning to do. And so I'll be working on that. And I've just agreed to do an edited volume for Penguin Classics on pirates, a Penguin Book of Pirates. And so I will be enjoying putting together some primary sources for that into a reader. Because I did a Penguin Book of Witches for them a number of years ago. This was a lot of fun, very informative. So it's uh, shaping up to be a busy... A busy twelve months, I think.
0: Yes. Are you able to give us any indication? The one you just finished and giving to friends to read or to early readers. Um, is that yeah. it's not a Salem one. It's a different time period. Or? It is a different time
1: period. It is I'm, I'm describing it as the the not the title is still a little bit in flux, but I'm describing it as Gone Girl Meets Treasure Island. it's uh it is a pirate story and it is based on it starts in boston in 1726 and is based on some actual historical research and historical documents and it's about a girl who through a series of unfortunate events has to has to go pirating in the last waning days of the uh, golden age of piracy and uh, i had i've had a lot of fun with it it has some unexpected elements i hope um that it also will have enough kind of piratey things that people who enjoy piratey things will enjoy. So I had a lot of fun
0: with it. Is there any magic realism aspect to that one? Uh,
1: it's more straight historical fiction, although there's certainly some there's it's never entirely a straightforward story with me. So there's a there's a there's a bit of a framing device as well. And yeah. I don't want to I don't want to spoil too much, but there's right. a, there's an open question as to how real what we're seeing is.
0: That way. And the book that you're doing for Penguin I didn't quite catch. Did you say Paris or Pirates? Pirates. Oh, the Pirates. Okay. Book yeah. of pirates. Oh, so fantastic. As,
1: yeah. Yeah. So it's going to dovetail rather nicely with the novel that's just been finished.
0: Yeah. Yes. And when's that one likely to come out? Well, I have to see. Probably not for a little bit. Probably
1: not till maybe next year. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's going to sort of depend on what the publisher has in mind. Yes. They made some extra time with it because of COVID and childcare questions. And then I finished it sooner than I thought. So. I'm not really sure what the the schedule is going to look like, but hopefully next year.
0: Now, do you enjoy hearing from readers? and Where can they find you online? Of course. I'm on all the major social media outlets.
1: Uh, You can find my author page on Facebook, where I'm Catherine Howe. You can find me on Twitter, where I'm at Catherine B. Howe, with my middle initial. You can find me on Instagram and see um, pictures of the toddler at Catherine B. Howe. And I uh, and also have a website, which is katherinehow.com.
0: Wonderful. And we'll have all of those links in the show notes that get published with this episode for people to find. So there'll be, there'll be a place where they can go. Look, thank you so much, Catherine. It's been great talking.
1: Thank you, Jenny. It was such a pleasure visiting with you.
0: Next week on The Joys of Binge Reading, historical romance from best-selling, award-winning author Laura France. It's 1755, she loves the 18th century, and the threat of war with France looms over colonial York, Virginia. A Virginia chocolatier and a privateering sea captain collide once more after a failed love affair a decade before. That's on Binge Reading next week.